The political revolutions in Eastern Europe nearly engulfed the package deal. When I returned to Washington three days later, I reported my conversation with Dung to Bush, Scowcroft, and Secretary of State James Baker at a dinner in the White House. As it turned out, China was not the principal subject. The subject of overriding importance for my hosts at that moment was the impact of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and an imminent meeting between Bush and Gorbachev set for December the second and third, 1989, in Malta. Both issues required some immediate decision about tactics and long-term strategy. Were we heading for the collapse of the East German satellite, where twenty Soviet divisions were still stationed? Would there now be two German states, albeit a non-communist East German one? If unification became the goal, by what diplomacy should it be sought? And what should America's attitude be in foreseeable contingencies? Amidst the drama surrounding the Soviet collapse in Eastern Europe, Dung's package deal could not receive the priority it would have elicited in less tumultuous times. The special mission I discussed with Dung did not take place until mid-December, when Brent Scowcroft and Lawrence Eagleburger visited Beijing for the second time in six months. The visit was not secret, as the July trip had been, and at this point still remained. But was intended to be low profile to avoid congressional and media controversy. However, the Chinese side engineered a photo op of Scowcroft toasting Chan Chichen, provoking considerable consternation in the United States. Scowcroft would later recount, as the ritual toasts began at the end of the welcoming dinner given by the foreign minister, the television crews reappeared. It was an awkward situation for me. I could go through with the ceremony and be seen as toasting those the press was labeling the butchers of Tiananmen Square, or refuse to toast and put in jeopardy the whole purpose of the trip. I chose the former, and became, to my deep chagrin, an instant celebrity, in the most negative sense of the term. The incident demonstrated the conflicting imperatives of the two sides. China wanted to demonstrate to its public that its isolation was ending. Washington sought to draw a minimum of attention to avoid a domestic controversy until an agreement had been reached. Inevitably, discussion of the Soviet Union occupied much of Scowcroft and Eagleburger's trip, though in quite the opposite direction from what had become traditional. The subject now was no longer the military menace of the USSR, but its growing weakness. Tian Qichen predicted the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and described Beijing's surprise when Gorbachev, on his visit in May, at the height of the Tiananmen demonstrations, asked China for economic assistance. Scowcroft later recounted the Chinese version of these events. The Soviets did not grasp the economy very well, and Gorbachev often did not grasp what he was asking of it. Chan predicted the collapsing economy and the nationalities problems would result in turmoil. I have not seen Gorbachev taking any measures, he added. Gorbachev has called on the Chinese side to provide consumer necessities. He told us, "We can provide consumer goods, and they will pay back in raw materials. They also want loans. We were quite taken aback when they first raised this. We have agreed to extend some money to them." The Chinese leaders put forward their package solution to Scowcroft, 
and linked the release of Fang Lijie to the removal of American sanctions. The administration preferred to treat the Fang case as a separate humanitarian issue to be settled in its own right. Further upheavals in the Soviet bloc, including the bloody overthrow of Romania's communist leader Nicolae Ceausescu, bolstered the sense of siege in the Chinese Communist Party. The disintegration of the Eastern European communist states also strengthened the hand of those in Washington who argued that the United States should wait for what they saw as the seemingly inevitable collapse of the Beijing government. In this atmosphere, neither side was in a position to depart from its established positions. Negotiations over Fang's release would continue through the American embassy, and the two sides would not reach a deal until June 1990, over a year after Fang and his wife first sought refuge, and eight months after Deng had put forward his package proposal. Note. Fang and his wife would ultimately depart China for the UK on an American military transport plane. They subsequently relocated to the United States, where Fang became a professor of physics at the University of Arizona. In the meantime, the annual reauthorization of China's most favored nation trade status required for non-market countries under the terms of the 1974 Jackson-Vanek Amendment. Which made most favored nation treatment conditional on emigration practices, was transformed into a forum for congressional condemnation of China's human rights record. The underlying assumption of the debate was that any agreement with China was a favor, and under the circumstances repugnant to American democratic ideals. The trade privileges should thus be predicated on China's moving toward an American conception of human rights and political liberties. A sense of isolation began to descend on Beijing, and a mood of triumphalism on Washington. In the spring of 1990, as communist governments collapsed in East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Romania, Deng circulated a stark warning to party members: Everyone should be very clear that in the present international situation, all the attention of the enemy will be concentrated on China. It will use every pretext to cause trouble. To create difficulties and pressures for us, China therefore needs stability, stability, and still more stability. The next three to five years will be extremely difficult for our party and our country, and extremely important. If we stand fast and survive them, our cause will develop quickly. If we collapse, China's history will regress for several tens of years, even for a hundred years. The twelve and twenty-four character statements. At the end of the dramatic year, Deng chose to carry out his long-planned retirement. During the 1980s, he had taken many steps to end the traditional practice of centralized power, ending only by the death of the incumbent or the loss of the mandate of heaven. Criteria both indefinite and inviting chaos. He had established an advisory council of elders. To which he retired leaders who were holding on to lifetime tenure. He had told visitors, including me, that he himself intended to retire soon to the chairmanship of that body. Starting in early 1990, Deng began a gradual withdrawal from high office, the first Chinese leader to have done so in the modern period. Tiananmen. May have accelerated the decision so that Deng could oversee the transition while a new leader was establishing himself. 
In December 1989, Brent Scowcroft proved to be the last foreign visitor to be received by Deng. At the same time, Deng stopped attending public functions. By the time of his death in 1997, he had become a recluse. As he receded from the scene, Deng decided to buttress his successor by leaving behind a set of maxims for his guidance and that of the next generation of leaders. In issuing these instructions to Communist Party officials, Deng chose a method from Chinese classical history. The instructions were stark and succinct. Written in classical Chinese poetic style, they embraced two documents, a 24-character instruction and a 12-character explanation restricted to high officials. The 24-character instruction read, Observe carefully. Secure our position. Cope with affairs calmly. Hide our capacities and bide our time. Be good at maintaining a low profile and never claim leadership. The 12-character policy explanation followed with an even more restricted circulation among the leaders. It read, Enemy troops are outside the walls. They are stronger than we. We should be mainly on the defensive. Against whom and what? The multiple character statements were silent on that issue, probably because Deng could assume that his audience would understand instinctively that their country's position had grown precarious, both domestically and even more so internationally. Deng's maxims were on one level an evocation of historic China surrounded by potentially hostile forces. In periods of resurgence, China would dominate its environs. In periods of decline, it would play for time, confident that its culture and political discipline would enable it to reclaim the greatness that was its due. The 12-character statement told China's leaders that perilous times had arrived. The outside world had always had difficulty dealing with this unique organism, aloof yet universal, majestic yet given over to occasional bouts of chaos. Now the aged leader of an ancient people was giving a last instruction to his society, feeling besieged as it was attempting to reform itself. Deng sought to rally his people, not by appealing to its emotions or to Chinese nationalism, as he easily could have. Instead, he invoked its ancient virtues, calm in the face of adversity, high analytical ability to be put in the service of duty, discipline in pursuit of a common purpose. The deepest challenge he saw was less to survive the trials sketched in the 12-character statement than to prepare for the future when the immediate danger had been overcome. Was the 24-character statement intended as guidance for a moment of weakness or a permanent maxim? At the moment, China's reform was threatened by the consequences of internal turmoil and the pressure of foreign countries. But at the next stage, when reform had succeeded, China's growth might trigger another aspect of the world's concern. Then the international community might seek to resist China's march to becoming a dominant power. Did Deng foresee that the greatest danger to China might arise upon its eventual resurgence? In that interpretation, Deng urged his people to hide our capacities and bide our time and never claim leadership. That is to say, 
Do not evoke unnecessary fears by excessive assertiveness. At its low point of turmoil and isolation, Deng may well have feared both that China might consume itself in its contemporary crisis, and also that its future might depend on whether the leaders of the next generation could gain the perspective needed to recognize the perils of excessive self-confidence. Was the statement addressed to China's immediate travail, or to whether it could practice the 24-character principle when it was strong enough to no longer have to observe it? On China's answer to these questions depends much of the future of Sino-American relations. Chapter 16. What kind of reform? Deng's Southern Tour. In June 1989, with the Communist Party leadership divided on what to do, the Party General Secretary Zhao Ziyang, appointed by Deng three years earlier, was purged over his handling of the crisis. The Party Secretary of Shanghai, Jiang Zemin, was elevated to head the Communist Party. The crisis confronting Jiang. Was one of the most complex in the history of the People's Republic. China was isolated, challenged abroad by trade sanctions, and at home by the aftermath of nationwide unrest. Communism was in the process of disintegrating in every other country in the world except North Korea, Cuba, and Vietnam. Prominent Chinese dissidents had fled abroad, where they received asylum, a sympathetic ear, and freedom to organize. Tibet and Xinjiang were restive. The Dalai Lama was feted abroad. In the same year as Tiananmen, he won the Nobel Peace Prize amidst an upsurge of international attention to the cause of Tibetan autonomy. After every social and political upheaval, the most serious challenge for governance is how to restore a sense of cohesion. But in the name of what principle? The domestic reaction to the crisis was more threatening to the reform in China than the sanctions from abroad. Conservative members of the Politburo, whose support Deng had needed during the Tiananmen crisis, blamed Deng's evolutionary policy for the crisis and pressured Deng to return to traditional Maoist verities. They went so far as to seek to reverse seemingly well-established policies. Such as the condemnation of the Cultural Revolution, a Politburo member named Deng Liqun, also known as Little Deng, asserted, "If we fail to wage a resolute struggle against liberalization, or against capitalistic reform and opening up, our socialist cause will be ruined." Deng and Jiang held exactly the opposite view. The Chinese political structure, in their perception, Could be given a new impetus only by accelerating the reform program. They saw in improving the standard of living and enhancing productivity the best guarantee of social stability. In this atmosphere, Deng, in early 1992, emerged from retirement for his last great public gesture. He chose the medium of an inspection tour through southern China. To urge continued economic liberalization and build public support for Jiang's reform leadership, with reform efforts stagnating and his proteges losing ground to traditionalists in the party hierarchy, 
The 87-year-old Deng set out with his daughter, Deng Nan, and several close associates on a tour through economic hubs in southern China, including Shenzhen and Zhuhai, two of the special economic zones established under the 1980s reform program. It was a crusade for reform on behalf of socialism with Chinese characteristics, which meant a role for free markets, scope for foreign investment, and appeal to individual initiative. Deng at this point had no official title or formal function. Nevertheless, like an itinerant preacher, he turned up at schools, high technology facilities, model businesses, and other symbols of his vision of Chinese reform, challenging his countrymen to redouble their efforts and setting far-reaching goals for China's economic and intellectual development. The national press, which was at the time controlled by conservative elements, initially ignored the speeches. But accounts in the Hong Kong press eventually filtered back to mainland China. In time, Deng's southern tour would take on an almost mythical significance, and his speeches would serve as the blueprint for another two decades of Chinese political and economic policy. Even today, billboards in China portray images and quotations from Deng's southern tour, including his famous dictum that development is the absolute principle. Deng set out to vindicate the program of reform against the charge that it was betraying China's socialist heritage. Economic reform and development, he argued, were fundamentally revolutionary acts. Abandoning reform, Deng warned, would lead China down a blind alley. To win the trust and support of the people, the program of economic liberalization must continue for a hundred years. Reform and opening up, Deng insisted, had allowed the People's Republic to avoid civil war in 1989. He reiterated his condemnation of the Cultural Revolution, describing it as beyond failure, a kind of civil war. The heir of Mao's China was advocating market principles, risk-taking, private initiative, and the importance of productivity and entrepreneurship. The profit principle, according to Deng, reflected not an alternative theory to Marxism, but an observation of human nature. Government would lose popular support if it punished entrepreneurs for their success. Deng's advice was that China should be bolder, that it should redouble its efforts and dare to experiment. We must not act like women with bound feet. Once we are sure that something should be done, we should dare to experiment and break a new path. Who dares claim that he is 100% sure of success and that he is taking no risks? Deng dismissed criticism that his reforms were leading China down the capitalist road. Rejecting decades of Maoist indoctrination, he invoked his familiar maxim that what mattered was the result, not the doctrine under which it was achieved. Nor should China be afraid of foreign investment. At the current stage, foreign-funded enterprises in China are allowed to make some money in accordance with existing laws and policies. But the government levies taxes on those enterprises, workers get wages from them, and we learn technology and managerial skills. In addition, we can get information from them that will help us open more markets. In the end, Deng attacked the left of the Communist Party, which was, in a sense, part of his own early history, 
where he had been Mao's enforcer in creating agricultural communes. At present, we are being affected by both right and left tendencies. But it is the left tendencies that have the deepest roots. In the history of the party, those tendencies have led to dire consequences. Some fine things were destroyed overnight. Prodding his countrymen by appealing to their national pride, Deng challenged China to match the growth rates of neighboring countries. In a sign of how far China has come in less than 20 years since the Southern Tour, Deng in 1992 extolled the four big items it was essential to make available to consumers in the countryside. A bicycle, a sewing machine, a radio, and a wristwatch. China's economy could reach a new stage every few years, he declared. And China would succeed if the Chinese dared to emancipate our minds and act freely in responding to challenges as they arose. Science and technology were the key. Echoing his path-breaking speeches from the 1970s, Deng insisted that intellectuals are part of the working class. In other words, they were eligible for Communist Party membership. In an overture to Tiananmen supporters, Deng urged intellectuals who were in exile to return to China. If they possessed specialized knowledge and skills, they would be welcomed, regardless of their previous attitudes. They should be told that if they want to make their contributions, it would be better for them to come home. I hope that concerted efforts will be made to accelerate progress in China's scientific, technological, and educational undertakings. We should all love our country and help to develop it. What an extraordinary reversal in the convictions of the octogenarian revolutionary who had helped build, often ruthlessly, the economic system he was now dismantling. When serving in Yan'an with Mao during the Civil War, Deng gave no indication that he would, 50 years later, be traveling around his country, urging reform of the very revolution he had enforced. Until he ran afoul of the Cultural Revolution, he had been one of Mao's principal aides, distinguished by his single-mindedness. Over the decades, a gradual shift had taken place. Deng had come to redefine the criteria of good governance in terms of the well-being and development of the ordinary person. A considerable amount of nationalism was also involved in this dedication to rapid development, even if that required adopting methods prevalent in the previously reviled capitalist world. As one of Deng's children later told the American scholar and head of the National Committee on United States-China Relations, David Lampton, In the mid-1970s, my father looked around China's periphery to the small dragon economies, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and South Korea. They were growing at 8 to 10% per year, and these economies had a considerable technological lead over China. If we were to surpass them and resume our rightful place in the region, and ultimately the world, China would have to grow faster than them. In the service of this vision, Deng was advocating many American economic and social principles as part of his reform program. But what he called socialist democracy was vastly different from pluralistic democracy. He remained convinced that in China, Western political principles would produce chaos and thwart development. Yet even as he espoused the need for an authoritarian government, Deng saw his ultimate mission as passing on power to another generation, which, if his development plan succeeded, 
was bound to develop its own conception of political order. Deng hoped that the success of his reform program would remove the incentive for a democratic evolution. But he must have understood that the change he was bringing about was bound eventually to lead to political consequences of as yet unpredictable dimensions. These are the challenges now facing his successors. For the immediate future, Deng, in 1992, stated relatively modest goals. We shall push ahead along the road to Chinese-style socialism. Capitalism has been developing for several hundred years. How long have we been building socialism? Besides, we wasted 20 years. If we can make China a moderately developed country within a hundred years from the founding of the People's Republic, that will be an extraordinary achievement. That would have been in 2049. In fact, China has done much better by a generation. Over a decade after Mao's death, his vision of continuous revolution was reappearing. But it was a different kind of continuous revolution based on personal initiative, not ideological exaltation, connection with the outside world, not autarky. And it was to change China as fundamentally as the great helmsman sought, albeit in a direction opposite of what he had conceived. That is why, at the end of the Southern Tour, Deng sketched his hope for the emergence of a new generation of leaders with their own new viewpoints. The existing leadership of the Communist Party, he said, was too old. Now over 60, they were better suited for conversation than for decisions. People of his age needed to stand aside, a painful confession for someone who had been such an activist. The reason I insisted on retiring was that I didn't want to make mistakes in my old age. Old people have strengths, but also great weaknesses. They tend to be stubborn, for example, and they should be aware of that. The older they are, the more modest they should be, and the more careful not to make mistakes in their later years. We should go on selecting younger comrades for promotion and helping train them. Don't put your trust only in old age. When they reach maturity, we shall rest easy. Right now, we are still worried. For all the matter-of-factness of Deng's prescriptions, there was about them the melancholy of old age, conscious that he would miss the fruition of what he was advocating and planning. He had seen, and at times generated, so much turmoil that he needed his legacy to be a period of stability. For all his show of assurance, a new generation was needed to enable him, in his words, to sleep soundly. The Southern Tour was Deng's last public service. The implementation of its principles became the responsibility of Zhang Zemin and his associates. Afterward, Deng retired into increasing inaccessibility. He died in 1997, and by then Zhang had solidified his position. Aided by the extraordinary premier Zhu Rongji, Zhang carried out the legacy of Deng's southern tour with such skill that by the end of his term in office in 2002, the debate was no longer over whether this was the proper course, but rather over the impact of an emerging, dynamic China on world order and the global economy. Chapter 17 A Roller Coaster Ride toward another reconciliation, the Zhang Zemin era. In the wake of Tiananmen, 
Sino-U.S. relations found themselves practically back to their starting point. In 1971-72, the United States had sought rapprochement with China, then in the final phases of the Cultural Revolution, convinced that relations with China were central to the establishment of a peaceful international order and transcended America's reservations about China's radical governance. Now the United States had imposed sanctions, and the dissident Fang Lijie was in the sanctuary of the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. And with liberal democratic institutions being embraced across the world, reform of China's domestic structure was turning into a major American policy goal. I had met Jiang Zemin when he served as mayor of Shanghai. I would not have expected him to emerge as the leader who would, as he did, guide his country from disaster to the stunning explosion of energy and creativity that has marked China's rise. Though initially doubted, he oversaw one of the greatest per capita GDP increases in human history, consummated the peaceful return of Hong Kong, reconstituted China's relations with the United States and the rest of the world, and launched China on the road to becoming a global economic powerhouse. Shortly after Jiang's elevation in November 1989, Deng was at pains to emphasize to me his high regard for the new general secretary. Deng, you have met the general secretary Jiang Zemin, and in the future you will have other chances to meet him. He is a man of his own ideas and of high caliber. Kissinger, I was very impressed with him. Deng, he is a real intellectual. Few outside observers imagined that Jiang would succeed. As Shanghai's party secretary, he had won praise for his measured handling of his city's protests. He had closed an influential liberal newspaper early in the crisis, but declined to impose martial law, and Shanghai's demonstrations were quelled without bloodshed. But as general secretary, he was widely assumed to be a transitional figure, and may well have been a compromise candidate halfway between the relatively liberal element, including the party ideologist Li Ruihuan. And the conservative group, such as Li Peng, the premier, he lacked a significant power base of his own, and in contrast to his predecessors, he did not radiate an aura of command. He was the first Chinese communist leader without revolutionary or military credentials. His leadership, like that of his successors, arose from bureaucratic and economic performance. It was not absolute, and required a measure of consensus in the Politburo. He did not, for example, establish his dominance in foreign policy until 1997, eight years after he became general secretary. Previous Chinese party leaders had conducted themselves with the aloof aura appropriate to the priesthood of a mixture of the new Marxist materialism and vestiges of China's Confucian tradition. Jiang set a different pattern. Unlike Mao, the philosopher king, Zhou, the Mandarin, or Deng. The battle-hardened guardian of the national interest, Jiang behaved more like an affable family member. He was warm and informal. Mao would deal with his interlocutors from Olympian heights, as if they were graduate students undergoing an examination into the adequacy of their philosophical insights. Zhou conducted conversations with the effortless grace and superior intelligence of the Confucian sage. Deng cut through discussions to their practical aspects, treating digressions as a waste of time. Zhang made no claim to philosophical preeminence. He smiled, 
laughed, told anecdotes, and touched his interlocutors in order to establish a bond. He took pride, sometimes exuberantly so, in his talent for foreign languages and knowledge of Western music. With non-Chinese visitors, he regularly incorporated English or Russian or even Romanian expressions into his presentations to emphasize a point, shifting without warning between a rich store of Chinese classical idioms and such American colloquialisms as it takes two to tango. When the occasion allowed it, he might punctuate social meetings and occasionally official ones by bursting into song, either to deflect an uncomfortable point or to emphasize camaraderie. Chinese leaders' dialogues with foreign visitors usually occur in the presence of an entourage of advisors and note-takers who do not speak and very rarely pass notes to their chiefs. Zhang, on the contrary, tended to turn his phalanx into a Greek chorus. He would begin a thought, then throw it to an advisor to conclude in a manner so spontaneous as to leave the impression that one was dealing with a team of which Zhang was the captain. Well-read and highly educated, Zhang sought to draw his interlocutor into the atmosphere of goodwill that seemed to envelop him, at least in dealing with foreigners. He would generate a dialogue in which the views of his opposite number and even his colleagues were treated as deserving of the same importance he was claiming for his own. In that sense, Zhang was the least Middle Kingdom type of personality that I have encountered among Chinese leaders. Upon Zhang's elevation to the top ranks of China's national leadership, an internal State Department report described him as urbane, energetic, and occasionally flamboyant, and related an incident in 1987 when he rose from the VIP rostrum at Shanghai National Day festivities to conduct a symphony orchestra in a rousing version of the Internationale, complete with flashing lights and clouds of smoke. During a private visit by Nixon to Beijing in 1989, Zhang had unannounced sprung to his feet to recite the Gettysburg Address in English. There was little precedent for this brand of informality with either Chinese or Soviet communist leaders. Many outsiders underestimated Zhang, mistaking his avuncular style for lack of seriousness. The opposite was true. Zhang's bonhomie was designed to define the line when he drew it that much more definitively. When he believed his country's vital interests were involved, he could be determined in the mold of his titanic predecessors. Zhang was cosmopolitan enough to understand that China would have to operate within an international system rather than through Middle Kingdom remoteness or dominance. Zhou had understood that as well, as had Deng. But Zhou could implement his vision only fragmentally because of Mao's suffocating presence, and Deng's was aborted by Tiananmen. Zhang's affability was the expression of a serious and calculating attempt to build China into a new international order and to restore international confidence, both to help heal China's domestic wounds and to soften its international image. Disarming critics with his occasional flamboyance, Zhang presented an effective face for a government working to break out of international isolation and to spare its system the fate of its Soviet counterpart. In his international goals, Zhang was blessed with one of the most skillful foreign ministers I have known, Qian Qichen, and a chief economic policymaker of exceptional intelligence and tenacity, the vice premier, 
and eventual premier Zhu Rongji. Both men were unapologetic proponents of the notion that China's prevailing political institutions best served its interests. Both also believed that China's continued development required deepening its links to international institutions and the world economy, including a Western world often vocal in its criticism of Chinese domestic political practices. Following Jiang's course of defiant optimism, Qian and Zhu launched themselves into extensive foreign travel, international conferences, interviews, and diplomatic and economic dialogues, facing often skeptical and critical audiences with determination and good humor. Not all Chinese observers relished the project of engaging with a Western world perceived as dismissive of Chinese realities. Not all Western observers approved of the effort to engage with a China falling short of Western political expectations. Statesmanship needs to be judged by the management of ambiguities, not absolutes. Jiang Qian, Zhu, and their senior associates managed to navigate their country out of isolation and to restore the fragile links between China and a skeptical Western world. Shortly after his appointment in November 1989, Jiang invited me for a conversation in which he cast events through the lens of returning to traditional diplomacy. He could not understand why China's reaction to a domestic challenge had caused a rupture of relations with the United States. There are no big problems between China and the U.S. except Taiwan, he insisted. We have no border disputes. On the Taiwan issue, the Shanghai communique established a good formula. China, he stressed, made no claim that its domestic principles were applicable abroad. We do not export revolution, but the social system of each country must be chosen by that country. The socialist system in China comes from our own historical position. In any event, China would continue its economic reforms. So far as China is concerned, the door is always open. We are ready to react to any positive gesture by the U.S., we have many common interests. But reform would have to be voluntary. It could not be dictated from the outside. Chinese history proves that greater pressure only leads to greater resistance. Since I am a student of natural sciences, I try to interpret things according to laws of natural sciences. China has 1.1 billion people. It is large and has lots of momentum. It is not easy to push it forward. As an old friend, I speak frankly with you. Zhang shared his reflections on the Tiananmen Square crisis. The Chinese government had not been mentally prepared for the event, he explained, and the Politburo had initially been split. There were few heroes in his version of events, not the student leaders nor the party, whom he described ruefully as ineffective and divided in the face of an unprecedented challenge. When I saw Zhang again nearly a year later, in September 1990, Relations with the United States were still tense. The package deal tying our easing of sanctions to the release of Fang Lijie had been slow in implementation. In a sense, the disappointments were not surprising, given the definition of the problem. The American advocates of human rights insisted on values they considered universal. The Chinese leaders were making some adjustments based on their perceptions of Chinese interests. The American activists, especially some NGOs, non-governmental organizations, were not inclined to declare their goals fulfilled by partial measures. To them, 
What Beijing considered concessions implied that their objectives were subject to bargaining and hence not universal. The activists emphasized moral, not political goals. The Chinese leaders were focused on a continuing political process, above all in ending the immediate tensions and returning to normal relationships. That return to normalcy was exactly what the activists either rejected or sought to make conditional. Lately, a new pejorative adjective has been entered into the debate, dismissing traditional diplomacy as transactional. In that view, a constructive long-term relationship with non-democratic states is not sustainable, almost by definition. The advocates of this course start from the premise that true and lasting peace presupposes a community of democratic states. This is why both the Ford administration and the Clinton administration, 20 years later, failed in obtaining a compromise on the implementation of the Jackson-Vanik Amendment from Congress. Even when the Soviet Union and China seemed prepared to make concessions, the activists rejected partial steps and argued that persistence would achieve their ultimate goals. Zhang raised this issue with me in 1990. China had recently adopted a lot of measures motivated, importantly, by a desire to improve relations with the United States. Some of them are matters that even concern purely Chinese domestic issues, such as the lifting of martial law in Beijing and in Tibet. We proceeded on these matters from two considerations. The first is that they are testimony to the Chinese domestic stability. Second, we don't hide the fact that we use these measures to provide a better understanding for U.S.-China relations. These moves, in Zhang's view, had not been reciprocated. Beijing had fulfilled its side of Deng's proposed package deal, but had been met by escalating demands from Congress. Democratic values and human rights are the core of America's belief in itself. But like all values, they have an absolute character, and this challenges the element of nuance by which foreign policy is generally obliged to operate. If adoption of American principles of governance is made the central condition for progress in all other areas of the relationship, deadlock is inevitable. At that point, both sides are obliged to balance the claims of national security. Against the imperatives of their principles of governance, faced with adamant rejection of the principle in Beijing, the Clinton administration chose to modify its position, as we shall see later in this chapter. The problem then returns to the adjustment of priorities between the United States and its interlocutor, in other words, to transactional traditional diplomacy, or else to a showdown. It is a choice that needs to be made and cannot be fudged. I respect those who are prepared to battle for their views of the imperatives of spreading American values, but foreign policy must define means as well as objectives. And if the means employed grow beyond the tolerance of the international framework, or of a relationship considered essential for national security, a choice must be made. What we must not do is to minimize the nature of the choice. The best outcome in the American debate would be to combine the two approaches. For the idealists to recognize that principles need to be implemented over time and hence must be occasionally adjusted to circumstance, and for the realists to accept that values have their own reality and must be built into operational policies. 
Such an approach would recognize the many gradations that exist in each camp, which an effort should be made to shade into each other. In practice, this goal has often been overwhelmed by the passions of the controversy. In the 1990s, American domestic debates were replicated in the discussions with Chinese leaders. Forty years after the victory of communism in their country, China's leaders would argue on behalf of an international order that rejected the projection of values across borders, once a hallowed principle of communist policy, while the United States would insist on the universal applicability of its values to be achieved by pressure and incentives, that is, by intervention in another country's domestic politics. There was no little irony in the fact that Mao's heir would lecture me about the nature of an international system based on sovereign states, about which I, after all, had written several decades earlier. Zhang used my 1990 visit for precisely such a discourse. He and other Chinese leaders kept insisting on what would have been conventional wisdom as late as five years earlier: that China and the United States should work together on a new international order. Based on principles comparable to those of the traditional European state system since 1648, in other words, domestic arrangements were beyond the scope of foreign policy. Relations between states were governed by principles of national interest. That proposition was exactly what the new political dispensation in the West was jettisoning. The new concept insisted that the world was entering a post-sovereign era. In which international norms of human rights would prevail over the traditional prerogatives of sovereign governments. By contrast, Zhang and his associates sought a multipolar world that accepted China's brand of hybrid socialism and people's democracy, and in which the United States treated China on equal terms as a great power. During my next visit to Beijing in September 1991, Zhang returned to the theme of the maxims of traditional diplomacy. The national interest overrode the reaction to China's domestic conduct. There is no fundamental conflict of interest between our two countries. There is no reason not to bring relations back to normal. If there can be mutual respect, and if we refrain from interference in internal affairs, and if we can conduct our relations on the basis of equality and mutual benefit, then we can find a common interest. With Cold War rivalries ebbing. Zhang argued that in today's situation, ideological factors are not important in state relations. Zhang used my September 1990 visit to convey that he had taken over all of Deng's functions. This had not yet become obvious, since the precise internal arrangements of the Beijing power structure are always opaque. Deng Xiaoping knows of your visit. He expresses his welcome to you through me and expresses his greetings to you. Second. He mentioned the letter which President Bush has written to him, and in this respect, he made two points. First, he has requested me, as General Secretary, to extend his greetings through you to President Bush. Second, after his retirement last year, he has entrusted all of the administration of these affairs to me, as General Secretary. I do not intend to write a letter in response to President Bush's letter to Deng Xiaoping, but what I am saying to you, although I put it in my words. Conforms to the thinking and spirit of what Deng wants to say. What Zhang asked me to convey was that China had conceded enough, and now the onus was on Washington to improve relations. So far as China is concerned, Zhang said, 
It has always cherished the friendship between our two countries. Now, Zhang declared, China was finished with concessions. The Chinese side has done enough. We have exerted ourselves and we have done the best we can. Zhang repeated the by now traditional theme of Mao and Deng. China's imperviousness to pressure and its fearsome resistance to any hint of foreign bullying. And he argued that Beijing, like Washington, faced political pressure from its people. Another point, we hope the U.S. side takes note of this fact. If China takes unilateral steps without corresponding U.S. moves, that would go beyond the tolerance of the Chinese people. China and the Disintegrating Soviet Union An undercurrent of all the discussions was the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev had been in Beijing at the beginning of the Tiananmen crisis, but even while China was being rent by domestic controversy, the basis of Soviet rule was collapsing in real time on television screens all across the world as if in slow motion. Gorbachev's dilemmas were even more vexing than Beijing's. The Chinese controversies were about how the Communist Party should govern. The Soviet disputes were about whether the Communist Party should govern at all. By giving political reform, glasnost, priority over economic restructuring, perestroika, Gorbachev had made inevitable a controversy over the legitimacy of communist rule. Gorbachev had recognized their pervasive stagnation but lacked the imagination or skill to break through its built-in rigidities. The various supervisory bodies of the system had, with the passage of time, turned into part of the problem. The Communist Party, once the instrument of revolution, had no function in an elaborated communist system other than to supervise what it did not understand, the management of a modern economy, a problem it solved by colluding with what it was allegedly controlling. The communist elite had become a Mandarin class of the privileged. Theoretically in charge of the national orthodoxy, it concentrated on preserving its perquisites. Glasnost clashed with perestroika. Gorbachev wound up ushering in the collapse of the system that had shaped him and to which he owed his eminence. But before he did, he redefined the concept of peaceful coexistence. Previous leaders had affirmed it, and Mao had quarreled with Khrushchev over it. But Gorbachev's predecessors had advocated peaceful coexistence as a temporary respite on the way to ultimate confrontation and victory. Gorbachev, at the 27th Party Congress in 1986, proclaimed it as a permanent fixture in the relationship between communism and capitalism. It was his way of re-entering the international system in which Russia had participated in the pre-Soviet period. On my visits, Chinese leaders were at pains to distinguish China from the Russian model, especially Gorbachev. In our meeting in September 1990, Zhang stressed, efforts to find a Chinese Gorbachev will be of no avail. You can see that from your discussions with us. Your friend Zhou Enlai used to talk about our five principles of peaceful coexistence. Well, they are still in existence today. It won't do that there should be only a single social system in the world. We don't want to impose our system on others, and we don't want others to impose theirs on us. The Chinese leaders affirmed the same principles of coexistence as Gorbachev, but they used them not to conciliate the West, as Gorbachev did, but to wall themselves off from it. Gorbachev was treated in Beijing as irrelevant, not to mention misguided. 
His modernization program was rejected as ill-conceived because it put political reform before economic reform. In the Chinese view, political reform might be needed over time, but economic reform had to precede it. Li Ruihuan explained why price reform could not work in the Soviet Union. When almost all commodities were in short supply, price reform was bound to lead to inflation and panic. Zhu Rongji, visiting the United States in 1990, was repeatedly lauded as China's Gorbachev. He took pains to emphasize, I'm not China's Gorbachev, I'm China's Zhu Rongji. When I visited China again in 1992, Qian Qichen described the collapse of the Soviet Union as like the aftermath of an explosion, shock waves in all directions. The collapse of the Soviet Union had indeed created a new geopolitical context. As Beijing and Washington assessed the new landscape, they found their interests no longer as evidently congruent as in the days of near alliance. Then, disagreements had been mainly over the tactics of resisting Soviet hegemony. Now, as the common opponent withered, it was inevitable that the differences in the two leaderships' values and worldviews would come to the fore. In Beijing, the end of the Cold War produced a mixture of relief and dread. On one level, Chinese leaders welcomed the disintegration of the Soviet adversary. Mao Zedong's strategy of active, even offensive deterrence had prevailed. At the same time, Chinese leaders could not avoid comparisons between the unraveling of the Soviet Union and their own domestic challenge. They, too, had inherited an ancient multi-ethnic empire and sought to administer it as a modern socialist state. Though the percentage of non-Han population was much smaller in China, about 10%, than the share of non-Russians in the Soviet Empire, about 50%, ethnic minorities with distinct traditions existed. Moreover, these minorities lived in regions that were strategically sensitive, bordering Vietnam, Russia, and India. No American president in the 1970s would have risked confrontation with China so long as the Soviet Union loomed as a strategic threat. On the American side, however, the disintegration of the Soviet Union was seen as representing a kind of permanent and universal triumph of democratic values. A bipartisan sentiment held that traditional history was being superseded. Allies and adversaries alike were moving inexorably toward adopting multi-party parliamentary democracy and open markets institutions that, in the American view, were inevitably linked. Any obstacle standing in the way of this wave would be swept aside. A new concept had evolved to the effect that the nation-state was declining in importance and the international system would henceforth be based on transnational principles. Since it was assumed that democracies were inherently peaceful, while autocracies tended toward violence and international terrorism, promoting regime change was considered a legitimate act of foreign policy, not an intervention into domestic affairs. China's leaders rejected the American prediction of the universal triumph of Western liberal democracy. But they also understood that their reform program needed America's cooperation. So, in September 1990, they sent an oral message through me to President Bush which ended with an appeal to the American president. 
For over a century, the Chinese people were all along subjected to bullying and humiliation by foreign powers. We do not want to see this wound reopened. I believe that as an old friend of China, Mr. President, you understand the sentiments of the Chinese people. China cherishes Sino-U.S. friendly relations and cooperation, which did not come easily, but it cherishes its independence, sovereignty, and dignity even more. Against the new background, there is all the more need for Sino-U.S. relations to return to normal without delay. I am sure that you can find a way leading to that goal, and we will make the necessary response to any positive actions that you may take in the interest of better Sino-U.S. relations. To reinforce what Zhang had told me personally, Chinese foreign ministry officials gave me a written message to transmit to President Bush, unsigned. It was described as a written oral communication, more formal than a conversation, less explicit than an official note. In addition, the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, escorting me to the airport, handed me written replies to clarifying questions I had raised during the meeting with Zhang. Like the message, they had already been conveyed at the meeting. They were given to me in writing for emphasis. Question. What is the significance of Dung not answering the president's letter? Answer: Dung retired last year. He already sent the president an oral message saying that all administrative authority over such affairs has been given to Zhang. Question: Why is the answer oral rather than written? Answer: Dung has read the letter, but since he entrusted these matters to Zhang, he asked Zhang to reply. We wanted to give Dr. Kissinger the opportunity to convey an oral message to the president, because of the role Dr. Kissinger played in favor of U.S.-Chinese relations. Question: Is Dung aware of the content of your reply? Answer: Of course. Question: When you mention U.S. failure to take corresponding measures, what do you have in mind? Answer: Biggest problem is continued U.S. sanctions on China. Would be best if the president could lift them or even lift de facto. Also, the U.S. has a decisive say in World Bank loans. Another point concerns high-level visits, which was part of the package. Question: Would you be willing to consider another package deal? Answer: It is illogical, since the first package never materialized. President George H. W. Bush believed, from personal experience, that to carry out a policy of intervention in the most populous nation and the state with the longest continuous history of self-government was inadvisable. Prepared to intervene in special circumstances, and on behalf of individuals or specific groups, he thought an across-the-board confrontation over China's domestic structure would jeopardize a relationship vital to American national security. In response to Zhang's oral message, Bush made an exception to the ban on high-level visits to China, and encouraged his Secretary of State James Baker to visit Beijing for consultations. Relations steadied for a brief interval, but when the Clinton administration came into office 18 months later, they returned for most of the new administration's first term to a roller coaster ride. The Clinton administration and China policy. On the campaign trail in September 1992, Bill Clinton had challenged China's governmental principles 
and criticized the Bush administration for coddling Beijing in the wake of Tiananmen. China cannot withstand forever the forces of democratic change, Clinton argued. One day it will go the way of communist regimes in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. The United States must do what it can to encourage that process. After Clinton took office in 1993, he adopted enlargement of democracies as a principal foreign policy objective. The goal was, he proclaimed to the UN General Assembly in September 1993, to expand and strengthen the world's community of market-based democracies, and to enlarge the circle of nations that live under those free institutions, until humanity achieved a world of thriving democracies that cooperate with each other and live in peace. The new administration's aggressive human rights posture was not intended as a strategy for weakening China or gaining a strategic edge for the United States. It reflected a general concept of world order, in which China was expected to participate as a respected member. From the Clinton administration's point of view, it was a sincere attempt to support practices that the president and his advisers believed would serve China well. In Beijing, however. The American pressures, which were reinforced by other Western democracies, were seen as a design to keep China weak by interfering in its domestic issues in the manner of the 19th-century colonialists. The Chinese leaders interpreted the new administration's pronouncements as a capitalist attempt to overthrow communist governments all over the world. They harbored a deep suspicion that, with the Soviet Union disintegrating, the United States might do as Mao had predicted. Turn from the destruction of one communist giant to poke its finger in the back of the other. In his confirmation hearings as Secretary of State, Warren Christopher phrased the goal of transforming China in more limited terms: that the United States would seek to facilitate a peaceful evolution of China from communism to democracy by encouraging the forces of economic and political liberalization in that great country. But Christopher's reference to peaceful evolution revived, whether intentionally or not, the term used by John Foster Dulles to project the eventual collapse of communist states. In Beijing, it signaled not a hopeful trend, but perceived Western designs to convert China to capitalist democracy without recourse to war. Note: Deng Xiaoping had given a speech in November 1989. Calling on China to adhere to socialism and prevent peaceful evolution toward capitalism, Mao had warned repeatedly against peaceful evolution as well. Neither Clinton's nor Christopher's statements were regarded as controversial in the United States. Both were anathema in Beijing. Having thrown down the gauntlet, without perhaps fully recognizing the magnitude of its challenge. The Clinton administration proclaimed that it was ready to engage China on a broad range of issues. These included the conditions of China's domestic reform and its integration with the broader world economy. That the Chinese leaders might have qualms about entering into a dialogue with the same high American officials who had just called for the replacement of their political system was apparently not considered an insuperable obstacle. The fate of this initiative. Illustrates the complexities and ambiguities of such a policy. Chinese leaders no longer made any claim to represent a unique revolutionary truth available for export. Instead, they espoused the essentially defensive aim 
of working toward a world not overtly hostile to their system of governance or territorial integrity, and buying time to develop their economy and work out their domestic problems at their own pace. It was a foreign policy posture, arguably closer to Bismarck's than Mao's, incremental, defensive, and based on building dams against unfavorable historical tides. But even as tides were shifting, Chinese leaders projected a fiery sense of independence. They masked their concern by missing no opportunity to proclaim that they would resist outside pressure to the utmost. As Zhang insisted to me in 1991, "We never submit to pressure. This is very important." Spoken in English, it is a philosophical principle. Nor did China's leaders accept the interpretation of the end of the Cold War as ushering in a period of America as a hyperpower. In a 1991 conversation, Chan Chichen cautioned that the new international order could not remain unipolar indefinitely, and that China would work toward a multipolar world, which meant that it would work to counter American preeminence. He cited demographic realities. Including a somewhat threatening reference to China's massive population advantage, to bolster his point, we believe it is impossible that such a unipolar world would come into existence. Some people seem to believe that after the end of the Gulf War and the Cold War, the U.S. can do anything. I don't think that is correct. In the Muslim world, there are over one billion people. China has a population of 1.1 billion. The population of South Asia is over one billion. The population of China is more than the populations of the U.S., the Soviet Union, Europe, and Japan combined. So it is still a diverse world. Premier Li Peng delivered possibly the most frank assessment of the human rights issue. In reply to my delineation of three policy areas in need of improvement: human rights, weapons technology transfer, and trade, he stated in December 1992. With regard to the three areas you mentioned, we can talk about human rights, but because of major differences between us, I doubt major progress is possible. The concept of human rights involves traditions and moral and philosophical values. These are different in China than in the West. We believe that the Chinese people should have more democratic rights and play a more important role in domestic politics, but this should be done in a way acceptable to the Chinese people. Coming from a representative of the conservative wing of the Chinese leadership, Li Peng's affirmation of the need for progress toward democratic rights was unprecedented. But so was the frankness with which he delineated the limits of Chinese flexibility. Naturally, in issues like human rights, we can do some things. We can have discussions, and without compromising our principles, we can take flexible measures. But we cannot reach a full agreement with the West. It would shake the basis of our society. A signature China initiative of Clinton's first term brought matters to a head. The administration's attempt to condition China's most favored nation trade status on improvements in China's human rights record. Most favored nation is a somewhat misleading phrase, since a significant majority of countries enjoy the status. It is less a special mark of favor. Than an affirmation that a country enjoys normal trade privileges. Note, reflecting this fact, most favored nation has since been technically renamed permanent normal trade relations, although the MFN label remains in use. The concept of MFN conditionality 
presented its moral purpose as a typically American pragmatic concept of rewards and penalties, or carrots and sticks. As Clinton's national security adviser Anthony Lake explained it, the United States would withhold a benefit until it produced results, providing penalties that raise the costs of repression and aggressive behavior, until the Chinese leadership made a rational, interest-based calculation to liberalize its domestic institutions. In May 1993, Winston Lord, then Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, and in the 1970s, my indispensable associate during the opening to China, visited Beijing to brief Chinese officials on the new administration's thinking. At the close of his trip, Lord warned that dramatic progress on human rights, non-proliferation, and other issues was necessary if China were to avoid suspension of its MFN status. Caught between a Chinese government rejecting any conditionality as illegitimate, and American politicians demanding ever more stringent conditions, he made no headway at all. I visited Beijing shortly after Lord's trip, where I encountered a Chinese leadership struggling to chart a course out of the MFN conditionality impasse. Zhang offered a friendly suggestion: China and the U.S. as two big countries. Should see problems in the long-term perspective. China's economic development and social stability serve China's interests, but also turn China into a major force for peace and stability in Asia and elsewhere. I think that in looking at other countries, the U.S. should take into account their self-esteem and sovereignty. That is a friendly suggestion. Zhang again attempted to dissuade the United States from thinking of China as a potential threat or competitor. Thereby to reduce American incentives to try to hold China down. Yesterday at a symposium, I spoke about this issue. I also mentioned an article in the Times, which suggested China will one day be a superpower. I've said over and over that China will never be a threat to any country. Against the backdrop of Clinton's tough rhetoric and the belligerent mood in Congress, Lord negotiated a compromise with Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell. And Representative Nancy Pelosi that extended MFN for a year. It was expressed in a flexible executive order, rather than binding legislation. It confined conditionality to human rights, rather than including other areas of democratization that many in Congress urged. But to the Chinese, conditionality was a matter of principle, just as it had been for the Soviet Union when they rejected the Jackson-Vanek Amendment. Beijing objected to the fact of conditions, not their content. On May 28, 1993, President Clinton signed the executive order extending China's MFN status for 12 months, after which it would be either renewed or cancelled, based on China's conduct in the interim. Clinton stressed that the core of the administration's China policy would be a resolute insistence upon significant progress on human rights in China. He explained MFN conditionality, in principle, as an expression of American outrage over Tiananmen, and continuing profound concerns about the manner in which China was governed. The executive order was accompanied by a rhetoric more pejorative about China than that of any administration since the 1960s. In September 1993, National Security Advisor Blake 
suggested in a speech that unless China acceded to American demands, it would be counted among what he called reactionary backlash states, clinging to outmoded forms of governance by means of military force, political imprisonment, and torture, as well as the intolerant energies of racism, ethnic prejudice, religious persecution, xenophobia, and irredentism. Other events combined to deepen the Chinese suspicion. Negotiations over China's accession to GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, later subsumed into the World Trade Organization, or WTO, deadlocked over substantive issues. Beijing's bid for the 2000 Olympics came under attack. Majorities in both houses of Congress voiced their disapproval of the bid. The U.S. government maintained a cautious silence. China's application for hosting the Olympics was narrowly defeated. Tensions were further inflamed by an intrusive and ultimately unsuccessful American inspection of a Chinese ship, suspected of carrying chemical weapons components to Iran. All of these incidents, each of which had its own rationale, were analyzed in China in terms of the Chinese style of Shunzi's strategy, which knows no single events, only patterns reflecting an overall design. Matters came to a head with the visit of Secretary of State Warren Christopher to Beijing in March 1994. The purpose of Christopher's visit, he later recounted, was to achieve a resolution of the MFN issue by the time the deadline for the one-year extension of MFN would expire in June, and to underscore to the Chinese that under the president's policy, they had only limited time to mend their human rights record. If they wanted to keep their low-tariff trading privileges, there had to be significant progress, and soon. <laughs>